0: Here we are. Fantastic to be with you all again. Um, I've had quite a lot of people say that they can't make it tonight, but we'll be here uh, for the next few, which is good. So I think we'll get, we'll get bigger. But um, before we crack on, I'm just going to kind of give us a bit of an overview of what we're going to get into in this module subject thingy Majig, which I gave the very, um, you know, the very snappy name, the kingdom of God, the end of the world, and everything in between. You know, my my catchphrase in life is brevity, brevity, brevity. Glad Brian got it. So let me give you a very quick overview before we crack on. So we are talking about the the topic, uh, a word that I'm going to define later, uh, the topic known as eschatology, the study of... Uh, the last things or the direction of things and we'll, we'll unpack what we mean by that a bit more but some dates now This is very very tentative. So please don't take this as uh, locked in but loosely the plan is we've got the first four absolutely sorted there may be a break before we pick it up again but um, yeah certainly over the next four months those dates are, are uh, locked in um, so tonight the, the one, is, as you can see there, is last things first, and we'll kind of go through things. Now, I'm happy to kind of take um, as long as it needs to kind of give this topic its space. It needs room to breathe. I think questions on it are very, very welcome. I think pausing to, to talk, I, I think we're going to go at quite a leisurely pace this evening. I kind of planned it so uh, I have more notes than I need. So in other words, if we only get through half of them, that's fine. I want us to kind of just make sure that we're wrapping our head around this, because I think it's so important to understanding the Bible. So, um, as, we, as I say, there we go. The, the one tonight is called Last Things First, getting into this topic. Now, um, same as last time, let me just give some kind of book recommendations. Um, the first one, now I would say, please don't be put off by its size. It's actually very accessible. This book called Age to Age... The Unfolding of Biblical Eschatology by Keith Matheson. He wrote this, let me see how long it is 600 and something? 700 page book. He wrote it by hand. The man is a machine. But uh, yes, from age to age, The Unfolding of Biblical Eschatology. This is not a book that you need to sit down and read cover to cover. He deals with every single book of the Bible and looks at their eschatological focuses. So let's say you're just doing your Bible reading and you think, oh, I remember what we were talking about, a deep dive. I want to know what, I don't know, Malachi is and how significant eschatology is in Malachi. So you can just turn to the section on Malachi. It's really good. If you go and read the section on Genesis after tonight, you will notice there are a number of things we have in common. Um, The the second one, this is not actually my book. This is, I stole this from Andy's bookshelf. But what that means is he can give you a hearty recommendation. So tonight's um, session is actually named after this book. This book is called Last Things First and very cleverly, the words are the wrong way around. Um, And and this is about kind of going to Genesis 1 to 3 with the lens of eschatology. So the content of this book, we're kind of doing in brief tonight. Now, uh, these ones are not necessarily, well, so I'm gonna show you three books. Two of them are not recommendations, even though they are very good, one of them is. So let let me, so there's a man called G.K. Beale, And this man is a powerhouse. No one one in this world will ever be on G.K. Beale's level, I think, I will say. And he wrote two very influential books. One called The Temple and the Church's Mission, which looks at the unfolding of the the temple and the church in the Bible. And one very big one called A New Testament Biblical Theology, which I'll be referencing a bit tonight. But the good news is he condensed his work into a very readable, very accessible book, which I've recommended before, which I know you've got, Andrew. Uh, God Dwells Among Us by G.K. Beale. And he had to get a co-author along to make sure it really was as accessible as he thought it was in his head. Uh, So if you want a good accessible look at how eschatology unfolds in the Bible, God Dwells Among Us by G.K. Beale. Very good. So let's crack on. Now before we go to the first thing, I kind of want to talk in groups. And here's the question I would like you to consider. Good evening, Simon. If you went to a Christian bookshop and you saw the, the section N times, what kind of things would you expect to see in that section? Now, this is not me saying what kind of things would you like to see in that section, I'm not gonna, we're not assessing the validity or the rightness or wrongness of things you might see, but what kind of topics would you expect to see in it? And then on the counterpoint, what kind of things would you be really surprised to see? So for instance, an Easter devotional, probably wouldn't fit in the end times section, but yeah, just talk amongst yourselves, what would you expect, what kind of topics would you think they would cover, what things would they talk about? I'll leave that to you for five, ten minutes. Shall we, a few more minutes or carry on? Carry on? Okay, carry on. Wait a second, a few more minutes or carry on, I was asking the same thing in two different phrases. Yeah, Okay, I'll carry on. Cool, so what did we, uh, what, what kind of things did we expect to see? I'm going to write them down. The rapture. The rapture. Yeah? Pre, a, post. Oh, as in pre, uh, mid, and post tribulation. I thought you meant. Yes, okay. I'll, I'll also include then what I thought you were meaning. Pre millennial, a millennial, and post millennial, eh? Explaining revelation. Ah. Revelation. What did you say, Simon? Something about COVID. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Okay, any else? Ref흡采ers. Left behind books. Okay, um, oh, I've put that in the pre-A post, yeah, so this is millennialism, in case anyone's, let me just add, millennialism, pre-millennialism, amillennialism, or post-millennialism. Okay, uh, I'll say one more thing, uh, I'll take one more thing, if there is anything more. Uh, did I hear you say, Janice, commentaries on the Bible, like every book? Oh, I thought that was a genius idea. Because, anyway. Yeah, perfect. I mean, there, sh- there should be. Yes. Um, all right, what would you not expect to see there? <laughs> I realize it's like, you know, how everything in this world is either a donut or not a donut. Um, Something useful. And with that, Andrew, I think we'll move on. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think this, this tends to be a pretty good overview of what the conception of eschatology is. And, and we'll talk about this in a sec, actually, so I'm going to hold that thought. Um, oh, by the way, handout, feel free to draw all over, jot all over. A few things, like, for instance, the, the lines with the cross, I'm not expecting you to do anything in particular with it. It's more like if you just want to draw on it and over some of the things we talk about, that's fine. But, uh, yeah, so let's talk about some terms. And I want to give some good space for as we talk about terms, because we're going to use these throughout the whole um, course. And I think it's really useful to right things. So let's let's define some terms. So, very very basically, eschatology is the doctrine of last things. And I say very very basically because we'll see why in a minute. It's, it it can sound narrower than it should be. Uh, so it comes from two Greek words: eschatos, which means last, and logos, which means a kind of a word or a study. So it's the study of the last things. Teleology this might not be a word you're very familiar with the teleology is the study of a thing's purpose or its end So pardon a study of a thing's purpose or end teleology So when I say end I don't mean the same thing as eschatolo- eschatology I mean like for instance if, if someone does something strange and you say to what end are you doing that? It means why so what's the purpose of this thing so we could talk about the teleology of a pen is to be an instrument by which I can write on a board. Okay, i forgot to put the definition there, there it is. Okay, and then lastly, protology. Now, protology is kind of like a mirror image of eschatology. This is the doctrine of first things. How a thing starts. Okay, and we're gonna spend a bit of time on each of these words, but first let's just jump onto eschatology. So, often, as, Illustrated here when we think about eschatology. We kind of think of this period that we're in now since Jesus Nothing really happens and then boom at the end you have the last days And so we ask questions about what those days are going to be like whether it's the last few years leading up or literally the last few days or the day of so we ask questions about tribulation and rapture and um, Yeah, left behind and, and so on and so forth now I want to say that with eschatology, one of the things we do need to do very basically is broaden the time frame. So we need to see all of history from the beginning to the end, not just from the time of Jesus. Now I've not put the cross in the middle there because I believe that it's kind of like equal time at the beginning and at the end. I've put the cross there because what stands at the central point of history is Jesus. So it could be that the cross should be way up to one side or way back the other side. We'll see. But the first thing I want to say about eschatology is that we need to think about this whole period as the eschatological period, right? the last period. And there's a few reasons for that. Could someone read as loud as they can the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 to 2? Thank you, Janice. So the writer of Hebrews refers to as the time which we live in now, because of the Messiah, as the last days. Since the first century, could someone read? Oh, maybe not the whole section. Uh, could someone read Acts two fourteen to maybe verse seventeen? Perfect. Cheers, Brian. So Peter stands up and he he says, we're not drunk. Instead, God is fulfilling a promise. And that promise was that in the last days, God would give the Spirit. We have the Spirit, therefore it's the last days. And we're not going to go through all of them, but there are six occurrences of the phrase the last days in the New Testament. And every single one of them, there is one which is debatable, but I would say every one of them, and I think most would probably agree, refer to the author's own time period or the time period of the Messiah, if you like. So, the, the reason why I've circled that whole period is because the New Testament refers to this whole period as the last days. We've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years. It's not something that's kind of yet to come. The other way that we need to kind of broaden our eschatology, oh, not this again. Oh, it so hard to get this on the screen. No! Okay, well, let's hope I can uh, fix this. In the meantime, I'll keep talking and hope. Um, I Might have to get one of my assistants to come and... Oh, is it? Oh, there we go. All right, don't touch anything. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so the second way we need to broaden eschatology is we need to see how this time period is expanding, you know, so the direction for which we're going. So it's not just about kind of a static, we're in the last days, but what is going on in this period? What what are we moving towards? And then a third way to expand it again is to consider the whole period of the history of creation and say what has it been moving towards? What have been the movements? What has been the eschatological changes in God's world? And then another thing, what happens after this world? So, we do believe that there is going to be an an end finally. So what happens afterwards? That's also eschatology. So when we talk about eschatology, it's really a very broad concept. We're talking about this period that we're in because of Jesus. We're talking about the whole history of the world and the direction for which it's moving to. And we're looking at the direction for which we're moving to in this period. And we're talking about the world after, the world to come, the new creation, whatever you want to call it. So, it's really a very broad category. And this is really only one half of eschatology. This is what we call cosmic eschatology. So, cosmos is a word that means the created universe. And so, when we're talking about cosmic eschatology, we're talking about what is going to happen with the world. The other half is, we're individuals. We have a life... Span, we're young, and then we're middle-aged, then we're old, and then we die. Where do we go after we die? This is what we call personal eschatology. So, even if the world doesn't end, I will. And so what's my eschatology? So these are, these are two um, questions. So if you go to a bookshelf, uh, 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 an eschatology bookshelf, which is a bit broader than just the end times, you might find these, but you might also find books on Heaven, what's heaven gonna be like? On hell, what's hell, what hell is like, for instance. So these are two halves of, or kind of two sides of one coin. Personal eschatology, cosmic eschatology. So let's think about teleology. As I say, any point, ask questions, interrupt me, that's fine. Okay, here's my question. Is this a success? This is a, a building in ruins. Would you say this was a success? Debbie, can you say that really loud? It depends what you're trying to do. Okay, so really it depends on who these guys are. Because if they're builders, and they've been tasked to come and build something, have they done a good job? But if they're demolition men, they'd have done a bad job if the building was still standing. As it happens, they are demolition men. So this is what I mean by, uh, it's important to understand teleology because the picture has no context. That There is no kind of um, context to the concept without the question of, well, what is the purpose? If the purpose is that the building comes down, a success is the building is down. If the purpose is the building is gonna be built, then it's a different success. So you need to ask questions of teleology when you're asking to getting to questions of eschatology, okay. So an eschatological eschatological fact is the building came down, okay. But what's the teleology? And then lastly, protology. Now, I've uh, I got a photo. I mean, I've got no beard and I look about twelve. But so this is from. Oh, well, I don't even say when this is from. That's just a stupid comment to make. Um, but I've used this to illustrate protology, because when we are talking about protology, we're talking about how things began, and, and what I want us to see is that these are all very much interrelated concepts. So when you take a typical marriage, now I realize it's not like this for every marriage, this is just in general, you generally have two young people who love each other very much, who want to spend the rest of their life together. So that's the protology of marriage. Protology is not about kind of keeping those things all the way through to the end. So when we're in our 50s, we'll still be these people. We won't look the same. We won't have the same inclinations. We'll have different passions. We'll have different things that animate us. But the, the kind of the protology sets a direction. It, it helps us to understand what the, the bigger job is. So I've, I've kind of used this as a way to talk about it. An acorn, if you like, is a protological oak tree. Or or the other way around, an oak tree is an eschatological acorn. So so protology, as I say, isn't about how do we keep this thing the same all the way through. Protology assumes that this thing is going to change and develop, and eschatology is about how it develops to the end. So, and notice that there's like an intensification, the, the acorn has grown massively, there's so much more to study, there's all these kind of intricate ways on it, and eventually it's gonna drop its own acorns. Now you say, well, this tree hasn't worked out very well because it looks nothing like an acorn. Well, that's, that's not what the difference between protology and eschatology is about. So, uh, lastly, I've just got kind of a, a little video of Homer Simpson building a barbecue. And I've chosen this video because I think it's so brilliantly has all three of those. So let's watch it and we'll, I'll point out what the protology, uh, teleology and eschatology is. If you don't already notice it yourself. So, um, you've got the protology there, you know, all the things fall out of the box, he's got the bricks, he's got the pipes, he's got the wet cement, he's got the teleology, he, he knows what he wants it to look like, he can see the picture on the box, he knows the purpose to which these parts are going to move, and then lastly, you've got the eschatology of a big jumble of parts there drying in the wet cement and uh, Homer crying on the floor. Um, so. Do you think we understand those concepts? Okay, well, the last thing we're going to do, very last thing, because I just want to make sure that we really kind of understand what we're talking about. I don't want to leave anyone behind. So, in your groups, I'd like you to consider the game of chess. And if you don't know chess, then choose, I don't know, a more common game like Ultimate Frisbee. Or football. (laughs) Just uh, choose a game that you know, and as a group, work through what is the protology, What's the teleology? What's the eschatology? Sweet. Five minutes. Right, folks. Are we ready? Yeah? Okay. Let's let's work through this. What is the protology of chess? I think the board to Okay. So right, so we've got the setup. The protology is the pieces are all laid out in the correct position. Now this is an important stage, and this shows how important protology is for understanding the game. Because if they're all over the place, and you have blacks and whites all mixed together, and you know I just have pawns, and you can have all my specials, you can't play the game. So (laughs) (laughs) no, Simon. For the the sake of my point, (laughs) that game doesn't exist. (laughs) So, theoretically, they all need to be lined up for the game to make sense. Okay, what's the teleology of chess? Yeah, kill the king. Yeah, so that is the end to which you're going, that's how you play. Right, and then, very simply, what's the eschatology? Which is the what? Checkmate, yeah, king dead. So you've got your protology, board set up, your teleology, you would know what we're here to do, and eschatology, king dead. Now there's a, a multitude of ways you're gonna get to that end, but the teleology is constantly driving all the moves you make. So I think that I think that there's actually some real richness in that analogy for understanding these three biblically but we'll get there later. Okay. So we're going to talk about the end of the world. It's a good conversation to have, isn't it? Love talking about the end of the world. So, very basic question, has the world ever ended? No? Must have felt like it. But no, I heard a lot of people say no. I'm going to say yes. Huh? Pardon? Well, I've got a whole list of times it ended. But the first one I was going to go to was going to be the flood. So, So 2 Peter 3 verse 6. Listen to the phrase that Peter uses here. He says, so he's talking about those who are mocking about the coming of Christ. And he says, they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. So, when Peter thinks about the world preceding the the flood, he almost kind of detaches the world as it is now and then, so much that he's saying that world, the world that then was. Now, I'm not saying that. Um, the world was physically unmade, and a new world was made. I'm just saying we have to have a broader concept of what we mean by the end of the world. So, I think there's a a phrase which I think is helpful, which will come up again later. Worlds die. The world, the system that existed before Noah's Ark, died. The world ended. And a new world emerged. And I think this is really important because often we can misunderstand a lot of things that the prophets have to say when they talk about things which sound to us like they're describing the end of the world. So I've got two passages here. So this one's from Zephaniah, great book, great name. Um, and it says, I'll sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. Can I just ask, what day of creation were man and beast created on? Six? Monday. <laughs> well, actually, no, no, that's, no, that's not, it's Friday. So, they were created on day six. I will sweep away the birds in the sky, created on day five, and the fish in the sea, created on day four, and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. So, you see what God is doing in Zephaniah, he's undoing creation. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, this sounds like it's just talking about the end of the world, doesn't it? Next few verses I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. This prophecy in Zephaniah 1 is a description of God's judgment on Jerusalem. But the language is so kind of of end-of-the-worldy because as God destroys his people, it's like the end of a world. The end of the world. The system that then was dies. Or another one from Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah says, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. What is this describing? Well, we've not seen the um, uh, stars not showing their light. We've not seen the sun darken. We've not seen the moon give up yet, so this must be future. But Isaiah tells us this is a prophecy against Babylon. This happened in 600. So again, you find the prophets are very happy to use cosmic end-of-the-world language to describe local judgments. And so I think we can broaden that out really and look through history and say, worlds die. So I've got here a picture of the fall of Rome. When Rome fell, that world died. The world completely changed. Uh, The second one's I'm trying to find something to kind of represent Christendom. I I couldn't really find something that I felt was adequate, but this will do. Um, With the onset of the Reformation and the way that the world is now, where we have very much separation of church and state, we have a very different world than what existed during Christendom. That world has died. Uh, equally, I mean, this is more of a kind of a, on a personal level. But when a loved one dies, for instance, when a mother know, loses a son or something, you can imagine them saying, "It's like my world is over. My world has ended." And then, lastly, I've just gone with the whole thing of an asteroid hitting Earth. Even if everyone on Earth died, if the Earth still existed, you could say, "Well, it wasn't the end of the world." Well, it it was though. The com- a complete shift in what it means to understand the world. So. Worlds die. And the reason I say all this is because what it shows us is eschatology is something that's going to keep appearing again and again in the biblical story. Noah had an eschatology. He had a a last days come in. The prophets, one of the reasons why the prophets can be so uh, hard to understand is that they keep using this phrase, the day of the Lord, and we always assume it's talking about Jesus' return. There are multiple days of the Lord as God shows judgment, as God brings worlds to an end. So we need to have a much broader concept of kind of the world ending, if you like, or, or even of eschatology. And so that at least kind of some people say, well, when we talk about eschatology, we're really just talking about the last, last days. And I think, as I say, this, this misses something. Eschatology is a very broad thing. So there's a quote on the handout from that book, Age to Age, that Keith Matheson says, eschatology... In a broader sense however concerns what scripture teaches about god's purposes in christ for history as such eschatology does include a study of the consummation of god's purposes at the end of history but it also includes a study of the stages in the unfolding of these purposes so eschatology is much broader than the day at the end of history when christ returns and If we go back to this graph for a minute one of the reasons why I think this is really important to understand is because there's something massive that stands in the center of history which is itself eschatological the cross of Christ This is a hinge point now if you read the Old Testament when Messiah comes that is like the last days this is something big is completely shifting how we view the world now in G.K. Beale's book the one I said I'm not recommending but it is really good In this one, he, I mean, the first 170 pages of this book are just him defending that the best way to understand the New Testament is through the lens of eschatology. And he makes a very good argument. But, I mean, the chapters in this, he takes basically anything you can think of and says, this is an eschatological unfolding of something else. Remember, we talked about the acorn and the oak tree. He kind of does the same thing. So, I've put on the handout there some of the things that he says. The temple in the Old Testament, a building made of bricks and stone, a local place. The eschatological temple is believers, filled with the Spirit of God, the located dwelling place of God. Israel, the eschatological Israel is the church made of all nations. The Canaanite conquest in Joshua, the eschatological conquest is Christ's victory over all evil. The, the promised land in the Old Testament, the eschatological promised land, is the new creation. And lastly, Jesus himself is the eschatological heir of David. So, now all of these things, if you like, happened in the first century, but they continue to be an ongoing reality, and there's even more to come. So, I mean, for instance, one of the ways you can think about it is um, the Sabbath, for instance, in the Old Testament is a, is a very... Um, Well, a very easy to define thing. It is a day of the week where we don't work. Now, when you read Hebrews, Hebrews chapter four, it says that the Sabbath that the Old Testament was always looking to is the new creation that God is gonna create. So that one day that we just thought we had to do because it's a thing to do, Hebrews is saying, yeah, that was just a picture of the eschatological Sabbath that is yet to come. So this whole thing is much broader then just a, a time frame that we can point to. Now, the last thing I just want to think about on this concept of the end of the world is uh, well, I've done a little pun here, and I, I explained this pun earlier, if you, I don't know if you missed it, the end of the world. And we talked about teleology, the end for which something is made, the purpose for it. So, uh, the Westminster Conf, um, Catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So what is the end of the world? How is history moving to its goal that God has created? How is it failing to, perhaps? That's a question that I think sometimes we have to wrestle with. Now, the, the point I think we need to grapple with is when we're talking about God, when we're talking about his world, when we're talking about Eschatology and history and so, um, teleology and stuff, we have to realize that God is sovereign over history. God is the king, the Lord of time. So if you go to Isaiah 41, for instance, there's this bit called the trial of the false gods, where God calls the false gods to trial and he says, Prove your God, tell me the future. And obviously, I mean, the false gods aren't real. They're just idols made by people. But the reason Isaiah is doing this is to point out to people the things that you worship are not worthy of your worship. They cannot do the most basic thing that God can do, which is tell the future. Why can God tell the future? Because he owns the future. Lord of time. Lord of history. So with God, eschatology and teleology go hand in hand. The purpose that God has will come to pass. It will happen. Now... There are some ways of viewing that, so for instance, some people kind of take the chess analogy I mentioned earlier. Some people would say, well, God knows that he is going to kill the king, but the moves and how he gets there, that's one way, which I think is an interesting way to talk about. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm on that view or anything, I just think that's a helpful way to at least start to think through um, that kind of, those kind of issues. So let's take a quick comfort break there before we go on to the last uh, section for tonight. Um, So, if we take maybe five minutes and then uh, we'll come back and, yeah, as I say, any questions do feel free to uh, jump out with them, but cool. Are we feeling comfortable enough to continue? Yeah? We're comfy? We're all comfy. All right. Okay. Okay. So, we're going to go to the very beginning of the Bible. I, I, I did want to get us to all read Genesis 1-3 to and consider the protology, teleology, eschatology, whatever we can find there, but I just decided that's going to take too long. So let me just give it as homework. I'm going to, I'm going to check up on you when I see you at church. Have you done your homework? No, joke. But, um, I mean, you might find it enjoyable. But we are going to consider just the, the um, Genesis one to three: Story of Adam and Eve in the Garden, and a few things to unpack here because I think it could be really helpful to understand the end in the beginning. So as I say, there's that book, let me recommend it one more time. Last things first, and that the subtitle is "Unlocking Genesis One to three with the Christ of Eschatology." and he just looks at how they're used in the Bible more broadly, uh, which is fantastic. so Uh, Here's my question to get us going, what was the eschatology of Adam and Eve in the garden? Should we talk in groups for two minutes? If your answer is, I don't know, that's fine. But just try an answer and uh, I'll, I'll call you back in a second. Yeah. So if we just if we just have our Bibles open to Genesis one to three, just so we can kind of go there. So yeah, I mean very basically Genesis two, verse seventeen says no, sorry, verse fifteen The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So yeah, absolutely, to tend to the garden. Anything else? So yes. Two for the price of one, or one for the—I don't know. Uh, yes, have a relationship with God. Absolutely, um, and let's just let's just unpack this a little bit because God makes man in His image. Okay, and having made him in His image. He then gives them a command, and we'll come back to this again in a minute, to be fruitful. This is Genesis 1:28, by the way. To be fruitful, to increase in number, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature. So there's a link there between the image of God and ruling. Um, if, I mean, feel free to turn with me just a bit later on in Genesis 9, for instance. In Genesis 9 verse 6 it says whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed for in the image of God has God made mankind now there's two interpretations of this verse one is the value of humans because they're made in the image of God is that if they get killed then the death penalty is necessary that's one interpretation the other interpretation which I find very interesting especially when we think about this is that it answers the question well, what right do you have to deal with that kind of justice? And what it's saying is, well, God has made man in his image. There is a legitimate sense in which they can be God's instrument of justice. There is a ruling attached to the image of God. Now, we can leave that issue aside for a little bit. All I'm trying to say is the image of God and the ruling, I think these are very much related to a relationship with God. God hasn't just said, oh, you're in my image, now go off and do your own thing. There's, there's a sense in which being in God's image means kind of working with him. The, the phrase that we use is vice regents. So when a king has a vice regent, it's not like, well, you rule your kingdom my, your way and I'll rule it my way. we work together. It's a common purpose, a common cause. So it's an invitation um, to be in relationship with God. Um, yeah, so relationship, that's a really good one. Anything else? being fruitful yes absolutely so again um genesis 126 then god said let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea the birds in the sky and over the land uh, uh, over the wild animals um, sorry i'm read for the wrong verse then 28 be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it so yes being fruitful multiplying So the end goal that we're trying to kind of get to here, and let me just say again, this book is very good on this. The first chapter on the eschatology of the garden is phenomenal. But the goal is that people bearing God's image will expand the borders of God's temple. Okay, no, I've gone too far. Let's let's stop. Let's let's go back a bit. Okay, now this is one of those things where I've I've kind of in my head, we've we've got three levels of how deep we can go, right? So I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of go here, and if you say no, we need to go deeper, then we'll go deeper. All right, Joseph said that I'm gonna have to go deeper. Okay, Genesis one and two, I think is best understood if we understand that Eden is a temple. Okay, so when you read about the temple being constructed, you find that there is a little room called the Holy of Holies. Okay, and then there's a room outside it called the holy place, and then there's the temple courtyard. Now, scholars have very convincingly argued that in Israelite theology, in the Old Testament itself, the temple was supposed to represent the world as it exists. So the courtyard represents just the wider earth, kind of creation. And the reason why we think this is because if you read about the construction of the temple, the outer bit was filled with, uh, for instance, images of animals, cows, there was trees, there was pictures of pomegranates. It was all very kind of creational. You walk in and it's like you're in uh, a garden. And this is the tabernacle. When they build the temple, they put actual gardens in the outer court. So you go in, there's water running and things like that. So it represents the, the wide earth. The inner room, the holy place, represented the heavens. And when an Israelite talks about the heavens, they're talking about the expanse of the sky. And the reason why they think that is because the curtain that marks as you go in has the stars all over it. The room is black. It has lights in it, candles in it. The, seven, um, the menorah, the seven candles, which represent the lights in the heavens. So... This is the the ground, the firm ground, the kind of terra firma that we're on. The second room is the heavens above us. And the Holy of Holies, what could you see when you go in the Holy of Holies? Absolutely nothing, because it was filled with incense. It was just a complete sensory overload. And this represents the unseen realm where God dwells. This is God's dwelling place pictured in a building So the point here is that the whole of creation, as massive as it is, is represented in this tiny little building that's probably not much bigger than this room. Now, when you go to Genesis, you find there is a particular place in the garden where there is a tree. Then you find there is a place called the Garden of Eden. Now, the interesting thing is, does anyone know what Eden means? means garden. So garden of gardens or the gardeniest place. So you have this outer room and then outside that, outside the garden, you just have the whole rest of creation that God has made. And when they're placed in the garden, God tells them to go, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And the thing that Beale says, and I I agree with him, is essentially their commission is to take the presence of God and to expand it out, to bring the presence of God everywhere until this whole world is a temple for God's presence. So, yes, Joseph. Yeah, they were supposed to. Absolutely. Yes. They, they were not, the last thing they were supposed to do is stay here all the time. So they're supposed to go, well, I mean, you know, I'm kind of, it's conjecture at this point, but go, kind of come back, maybe eat from the tree and then go and, and so on and so forth. So the whole point is that they're supposed to be expanding God's presence everywhere, all as God's vice regents. They're made in God's image and commissioned to do this. So the kind of the, the basic eschatology is to bring God's glory everywhere. But the second thing we see in this story is that there are two trees. So there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they are explicitly commanded not to eat from. You do not eat from this tree. And then there's also the tree of life. Right. Now, one thing that we notice, which is very interesting, is after they have sinned, God says... um, Then the Lord God said, this is Genesis 3, verse 22, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So, in other words, eternal life was on offer to Adam should he eat from the tree. Now, I don't think that that means necessarily that the tree had a special fruit. I think in the same way that God uses physical things as means of grace even now so for instance when we take communion together it's literally just bread and wine but through it God communicates and and comes to his people in a a special way so in in the same way um, as Adam and Eve eat from this tree it's not like the the fruit kind of does amazing things it's not like it's a superfood superfood it's just a tree but through it God is imparting life so now you don't have to agree with me on this But the the view which I take, which is um, very um, popular in Reformed or Protestant churches, is is something called the, the Covenant of Works. Where should I write this? Sorry, let me just do some vigorous rubbing. Okay, Covenant of Works. Let me explain this very, very briefly. So a covenant is an agreement between two parties that has blessings and curses and promises. And we see these all the time in the Bible. Now when you come to Genesis, you find that God gives them a blessing. You can eat from the tree. You will have eternal life. Okay, so there's a blessing. There's also a curse. So Genesis 2 verse 17 says... Uh, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat from it, you will certainly die. So there's a curse, which is death. There's also a promise, or or, I suppose, no, sorry, let me get this right. The promise is the fruit of the tree of life. The blessing is um, that God, so I, I love the way that the word's this, God blessed man and said to him, be fruitful and increase in number. So he blessed them and said, do this. And then later on in Genesis 2, it says, and God commanded them, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. So the blessing is a command and the command is a blessing. But anyway, the command is, go, be fruitful. It's not go. It begins with a G, not a B. Okay, so this is a covenant that God makes. Now, the view here is essentially that this tree of knowledge of good and evil was a probation. So it's not as though for the rest of his life Adam was bound to not eat from this tree. It's that God was, Adam was to demonstrate his faithfulness. He was to show his obedience, and then God would allow him to eat from the tree of life. Now you might not be able to. You might look at Genesis one three and say, "Well, I'm not sure about that. That sounds a bit um, squiffy." Fair enough, but I think there are other places in the Bible that would lead us to that conclusion. Bill um, we'll will help you with that, but uh, well, we'll talk about some of them in a minute, actually. But so I, I would take the view that essentially Adam isn't always bound to not eat from this tree. And so the eschatology is, to go back to the the case at hand, the eschatology is, having shown his faithfulness, Adam will be able to eat from the tree of life and be given eternal life, and Eve, and his posterity. They will bring the glory of God to all creation, and God will be all in all, as 1 Corinthians 15 words it. So, now as I say, we can come back to this and clarify any of these things. But so Adam's task... Is to work the garden to extend the borders to bring God's glory to the world to multiply and fill the world to be God's vice regent over creation okay Adam's reward the eschatology of this was that he will eat from the tree of life he will receive eternal life and Sabbath rest now the reason I'm including this here is because I think it's significant that in Genesis 1 we see God working making doing and then he finishes he rests from his labors and he enters Sabbath rest and then the next thing we have is man who is told to work and do and do things I think the implication there is having done his working and doing things man is also invited to enter into God's Sabbath rest and I think that Hebrews 3 and 4 would make the the same point that is what was on offer and the reason I've done see 1 Corinthians 15 we, we. Mm, there's. Shall we talk about this? Shall we not talk about this? We got time. Don't worry, Andy. Let's talk about it. Okay. Let's let's turn to one Corinthians 15. <laughs> okay. So one Corinthians 15, I think, is really important for this because in this passage, Paul is considering what it means for us to have a resurrection body. Now bear in mind, Paul is a faithful Jew, and he believes that, he doesn't believe that Adam happened off in a far-off universe. He doesn't think that the body that we have is bad. In, In fact, if we talk about the protology of Genesis, we can find that creation is very, very good. So God makes a world which is great, fantastic. And he puts Adam and Eve in it, and he says, he doesn't say, now don't you touch it. He says, do something with it. I'm excited to see what you do. So, so Paul very much has that protology. The body I have was the body that was designed to do these things. And he makes this point in, um, in chapter 15. If we start at uh, verse 44. okay, So he talks about how we die and then are raised with a spiritual body. And he says, it is sown, as in dying, being put in the ground, a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, the word used there, the eschatos, the the eschatological Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the heavenly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. The earthly man, sorry, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. So the point that Paul's making there is the uh, Jesus has come to be the, the, what to offer us what Adam did not offer. He has fulfilled what Adam failed to do and in so doing has given us new bodies, eternal life in resurrected, glorified bodies. I think it's very reasonable to to take as a point here that what's being said is, if Adam had been obedient as Christ was obedient, then what was on offer was a glorified, resurrected body. So the reason I've, I've included 1 Corinthians 15 there is because I think Paul is dealing with questions of our bodies as they are and as they will be, and he goes to Adam, the story of Adam, to understand that. As I say, Beale's great on this. You got your hand up, Jack? Just doing your hair. Okay. And then lastly, Adam's curse. If you eat from it, you'll be subject to the power of death. Now, the reason I've worded it like this is important. So we read, the day you eat from it, you'll surely die. And I think we have a tendency to read that as though you eat it, you die. And in Hebrew, that's not how the sentence works. The, 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 the statement is making a, a point of connection between you eating this and you dying. So if I said, for instance, if you eat lots of cake, you will get fat. That doesn't mean cake goes in suddenly. It means it begins a process of. So I think a really good way to understand it is the day you eat from it, death will be at work in you. So if you eat from it, you'll become subject to the power of death. Work becomes a toil, broken relationship with God, severed both physically and spiritually. I not not say physically and spiritually is because in a very real sense they're moved from the garden. They're no longer in God's presence. They're in the outer bit, the bit they were supposed to be glorifying and working on. They are spiritually separated from God. They don't have the same communion with him. They now have death at work in them. So it's in a very real sense, every way you can conceive of a relationship with God, they have been separated from them. So from this point on, people are in need of salvation. But notice that in the garden, there was no need for salvation. There was nothing to be saved from. So this is what leads to the quote that's on your handout there. So let me explain this. Fesco says, eschatology precedes soteriology. And what he's saying there is soteriology is salvation, just to clarify. What he's saying is God's purposes to have an end for the universe, to have a purpose to which it's moving to, have been there before there was any need for Christ to die in our place. So in other words, when we think about salvation, we shouldn't think of it as just, us getting back to where Adam left off, and in fact I've got a a table here. So we understand, I think, quite well that there was a downwards trajectory that Adam could take us on. When you eat from it, you will certainly die, and obviously the New Testament says this is exactly what happened. Paul in Romans 5 says, through one man's sin, the many became sinners. But what we often miss is that there was also an upwards trajectory that Adam could have taken us on. He If he was obedient, if he fulfilled the covenant of works, then he could have taken from the tree of life and eaten of it. Now, the reason I think this is important to understand is, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls Christ the last Adam. And this time, he is the faithful Adam, the one who fulfilled the calling that God failed at. Now, the last Adam is very significant. He doesn't call him the second Adam, Because as we'll see as we go through over the next few weeks, there have been lots of Adams in between. And now Jesus comes as the one finally who is going to fulfill it. So when you see, for instance, Jesus in in the desert with the devil being tempted to eat. And he rejects the devil's call. And he says, I will not eat the things you tell me to eat. What do you see there? You see the story of the Garden of Eden. Except almost in reverse, rather than being in the garden where everything that God has given is available and man falls, instead you find Christ in the wilderness with nothing around him being told, just have some bread. And he says, no. And the point that the gospels make is he is faithful at every turn where Adam wasn't. And so now is fulfilling what Adam could never have given us. So salvation, if you like, is getting us not just kind of back on track with Adam, but beyond where Adam would have took us. So eschatology precedes soteriology, I think in both in importance and in time. So, uh, just two Bible verses there. Romans 5 at the bottom, as sin entered the world through one man, so death came through sin. And in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. So Adam took us downhill. But in Revelation, the tree of life appears again. And that, I could have chosen this there's three verses I could have gone with I just went with Revelation 2 where Christ says to the church to the one who is victorious I will give the right to eat from the tree of life why is that so significant? how did Genesis 3 end? it ends with God saying these pages are very thin oh come on Okay, it ends with God saying, um, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden, cherubim and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So there's a big sign, no entry, you may not eat from the tree of life. And now in Revelation 2, Christ says to the church, if you're faithful, to the one who is victorious, come on in, eat. So Christ doesn't put us back in the garden, He doesn't say, right, I'll save you from your sins so that you can do what Adam couldn't. He says, I'm going to do what Adam couldn't on your behalf. I mean, that's the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? Salvation by faith, not by works, is about God saying, we've tried it by works and it didn't work. So I think eschatology, and a much broader view, is so important to understanding the gospel even, because it's uh, it's where we begin. It's what salvation is all about. Now, we wouldn't finish the time looking at the eschatology of Genesis 1 to 3 if we didn't spend some time very, very briefly, literally a couple of minutes, on Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So, here in this section, Adam and Eve have just fallen. They've disobeyed God. They've turned against him. And God comes. I mean, I love the tenderness of this. When God says, Where are you? Don't read that as God saying, I'm not, I'm not omniscient. I don't know where you are. Come and let me know. God knows exactly what they, where they are, but you just see God's fatherly love and care the same way that when the woman touches Jesus' cloak and he says, who touched me? He knew exactly who touched him. And says, God knows where they are, but he invites them, come before me, tell me what you've done. And so they come. This creature from the dust that God has made that exists solely by his will and for his will, has defied a cosmic and omnipotent creator who has given him everything he needs for life. He has eaten fruit that he didn't need to eat. And where does God land his attack for this? Does he knock the man dead and would be exactly deserved? No, he turns to the serpent and curses it first. And he says to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So before we can move on from the fall, God gives us a little seed of eschatology. The ending of this story is not that the serpent will win. God wants us to know. Before you even get into chapter 4, before you get anywhere near the New Testament, an eschatology is laid out for us. The serpent will be crushed by a seed of the woman. He's going to come. yet the serpent's going to strike his heel. That hurts. If a snake strikes your heel, it's going to really hurt. But the snake's going to end up with no head. Now, we'll see this again as we kind of go through over the next few weeks, but that hope that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head just keeps appearing and appearing and appearing, and it intensifies. Think about the story of David and Goliath. The one thing it tells us about Goliath's clothes, he's dressed in scales, and then a stone crushes his head as, the, as God's king comes forth. And I think, wow, that's an amazing story. The shepherd king of Bethlehem, who crushes the stone of the serpent... And then, you get to the Gospels, and it happens all over again. Wonderful stuff. So, let's finish there. Um, Let me recap, and then I'll open up for questions, and then we'll pray and uh, finish. So, recap and overview. We talked about eschatology, we talked about teleology, we talked about protology. I hope we've got our head around those concepts. Last things, end of things, first things. Uh, We talked about having a much broader view of biblical eschatology, more than just the return of Jesus, more than just those last few days. And we looked at the beginnings of eschatology in Genesis 1, 2, 3. So that is us for tonight. That is us looking at the last things first. Uh, Any questions? Don't be shy because someone always comes up to me afterwards and says, I was going to say this. No? Okay, that's fine. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that your work does not place us back in the garden, but you have given us what Adam couldn't. Lord, we do thank you for the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would lift our eyes to the God of history, the one through whom all things are working to their conclusion. And Lord, I pray that we would bless you and honor you and glorify you accordingly. So stir our hearts with the things we've looked at tonight to worship you. Amen. Thank you so much for coming, guys. Great to have you.